0: I said earlier, we have started our new series called Summer in the Psalms, and before we get rolling on this series, I want to recommend a book to you guys, Um, and I think this book will be helpful not only for this series, but but just for you in general, and you don't have to raise your hand, there's not going to be a quiz, but how many of you, you struggle with your quiet time, and maybe some of you, you don't even have a quiet time, you know, Um, and that's okay, but I think that this book will help, and it's called... The Songs of Jesus, and it's by a guy named Tim Keller, and here's all it is. is Each page is, is one day. Okay, So this is October 12th, and each page is three paragraphs long. And the first paragraph is just a few verses from a psalm. The next paragraph is just a quick lesson from that psalm. And then the last paragraph is a prayer for you to pray based on what you've learned. And that's it. That's the whole day. Okay, So it's a psalm. It's a page a day, and by the end of a year, you will have gone through every verse of every psalm, okay? One page a day, by the end of the year, you'll have gone through every verse of every psalm, okay? And like this summer, what we'll we'll be doing is we'll be going through the psalms, and I'll take a psalm, and then next week, Bob will be back, and then Bo's going to help us out some as well, because we'll be out of town. Just take take this book and take the psalm that we preach on, and then the next day find it in here and just start there and use that as your quiet time. This is a very easy tool and super helpful. It's on pvstudents.org. It's on our books page. Um, Just some low-hanging fruit for you guys, but that could be be super beneficial. Um, And let me know if you guys have any questions about the book. It's $15 on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. So again, great way to help your quiet time. Three paragraphs a day, and it's good stuff. It really is. So, we are going to start with our new series called Summer in the Psalms, and tonight we are starting it with Psalm 13, like Will read. And Will read it for us, so just go ahead and turn there, and while we're turning there, I'm going to read it again, so we can kind of get, a, get another bit of a flavor for it, and then we'll look at what it teaches us. So Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my own soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversary will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, that's a very, just straight out from verse one, that's a very sad psalm. It's a very kind of depressing psalm. And it's supposed to be. This is what's called one of the Psalms of Lament. Lament is another word for sadness. This is a psalm of sadness. And these are all throughout the book of Psalms. And and kind of their, um, their character makeup is. They involve, the narrator of the psalm has a problem, okay? That's pretty obvious from the get-go. The narrator of the psalm has a problem, and God has not stepped in yet to help solve that problem. And that's why it's called a psalm of lament. And so, you know, we just started summer. We're just starting a new series. Why would we start with a psalm like this? Why would we start with kind of this depressing psalm? And the reason I want to start here is because I think this psalm teaches arguably life's two most important lessons. and I'm not trying to be cliche. I really think this. I think this psalm teaches us life's two most important things, and, and these are the two things that we'll go through tonight. The first one is pain is not all bad. Pain is not all bad. And two, Jesus is the answer to our pain. And these are the two things we're going to go through tonight. Pain is not all bad, and Jesus is the answer to our pain. And I think that this psalm shows us that. So right out of the gate, a lot of people who are not Christians, who are kind of you know on the edge and not really sure, they think that Jesus was, this, was like this. This is how they would describe him. He was this really good guy, really great guy, and he just had this huge following of people. And he had this huge following of people because the things that he says were just so moving and so wonderful. And, so, and, and all his sermons and all the things that he would say, all the things he would say are so amazing. And they would just draw these huge crowds and they would love him and they followed him. That's who Jesus was. He was this great guy who wanted a big following and he was very gifted with his words, so that's what, it, that's what he did. And for people who say that, I like to kind of think, you, you haven't really read your Bible. Like You've kind of missed the whole thing from the beginning. and you know, and, and Jesus was... He was a wonderful person, he was very kind, and because of what he has done, we do have forgiveness from the Father, and and amen, but he's not so much known for sugarcoating it. That's not really Jesus' MO, okay? A couple of examples, and you don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 6, you guys are familiar, you guys have been through Sunday school, a lot of you, with the feeding of the 5,000, okay? Jesus feeds the 5,000 people, so he has this huge following, and most of you know, the 5,000 was not, that wasn't everyone who was there. That was just the men. Okay? That doesn't mention the mothers. It doesn't mention the wives or the children. A lot of scholars think that there's roughly anywhere from nine to 15,000 people there following Jesus. So he has a following of 15,000 people. And the reason they're there is because he's doing the magic show. Because he's doing the tricks. He's taking the five loaves and the two fish, and he's spread them out to feed all these people. And that's why they're following him. Okay? And Jesus knows that. Now, if you have... A following of 15,000 people and they're there because you're doing the magic. What should you keep doing if you want a following? You should keep doing the magic. And Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, he kind of does the opposite here. So just listen. In John, in John chapter 6, verse 51, it says, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. So you've got, so you've got 15,000 people that have just been told, you're going to live forever and all you have to do is eat this bread. So they're like, okay, okay. And they're like foaming at the mouth, like physically and like spiritually too, like they're ready. What is this bread? What do we have to eat? I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread also which I give for you for the life of the world is my flesh. Oh, and so they find out, like, you have to eat his flesh to live. And they say, look, the next verse, they say, Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They have, they're talking about, what in the world is he? This guy is crazy. And so Jesus, to kind of calm them down and clear it up, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So, clear, right? we figured it out. He's he sees that these people are here for the miracle working, for the magic show, and he tells them, "In order for you to live forever, this thing that you want so badly, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood." Now Peter's figured it out. Peter says down um, in verse sixty nine, excuse me, verse sixty eight. Simon Peter answered Jesus, Lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life peter's figured it out peter understands that it's his teaching that he's talking about jesus is pointing to the lord's supper but they don't know that yet it's his teaching that he's talking about think about it when you learn something from the bible thanks to the holy spirit it plants itself in your heart and it transforms your heart and it begins to change your mind and it affects how you live does that make sense food is the same way You eat this food, it digests in your system and spreads to the rest of your body so that now it changes how you live. It's the same thing. Jesus is talking about his teaching, and Peter gets that. Now how does Peter get that? We'll find out in just a minute. Another one that Jesus likes to do, in Matthew 19, Jesus is talking about divorce. And he basically tells them, when two people get married, God recognizes that as a marriage. And the state recognizes it as a marriage. But when they get a divorce, just because the state recognizes it as a divorce, God does not recognize that as a divorce. And the disciples come to him again, and they say, they say basically, if marriage is that intense, it's better off not to get married. And Jesus' response is, he who can accept this, let him accept it. He doesn't come around, and he's like, okay, that's kind of rough. Here, this is what, I, this is what I'm trying to say to you. He doesn't do that. He says what he says. And he lets the Holy Spirit do his work. And then the last one, which is my favorite one, you guys, you guys know the, the, I guess you'd call it the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? The story of the Good Samaritan. You guys know this story. And the Samaritan's this great guy, except for here's the problem. He's talking to a group of Jews and Jewish people hated Samaritans. Okay? Samaritans, here's what they here's just a couple of things they do. Here's the greatest hits. They would worship they worship different gods. Okay? They worshiped gods that were not God. So that's kind of the whole ball game right there. Okay? So they worshiped the wrong gods. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible. They didn't accept the rest of the Old Testament. They didn't accept the prophets. They didn't accept accept the Psalms or the Proverbs. They didn't, none of that. Didn't accept it. So there's strike two. And then the last one which is my favorite Any criminal who committed a crime in Israel and was kicked out from the Jewish community, guess who would welcome them? The Samaritans. They would welcome them. It was like like living in a jail. The Samaritans welcomed the Jewish people who had sinned so badly they were kicked out of Jewish society. I mean, these are the worst of the worst. And in the good Samaritan, to all these Jewish people, who is the hero of the story? The Samaritan. This is not easy listening. These people would have hated what Jesus had to say in some ways and at some times. But yet Peter and these disciples, these guys follow him almost until the end. They love what he has to say. Now why is that? Why would they love that? Matthew chapter 16 gives us a clue. So keep a finger in Psalm 13 and turn over to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 verse 15 and again, we're trying to figure out why would these people follow him then if Jesus is so sometimes kind of rough with the things that he says? Why would they still follow him? Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus said to them, "'But who do you say that I am?' And Simon, here's Peter again, "'And Simon Peter answered, "'You are the Christ, the Son of the living God.' And Jesus said to him, "'Blessed are you, Simon, Simon Peter,' Because flesh, and here it is, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Blessed are you because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? Okay, flesh and blood are revealing things. What is, that, what is, what is happening? Flesh and blood is re- in reference to the world, okay? Anytime the Bible talks about the flesh, it's in reference to you as a person and the world. Flesh and blood revealing it. How, do, how does the world reveal things to us? Well, think about like a commercial, It doesn't really talk about the bad things that could happen with the product. It only shows people who are happy with the product. It kind of twists the truth a little bit and kind of sweetens the deal. If that, you know, this will kill 99%, well, what's this 1% thing that's not getting killed? Nobody's telling me. Like, they kind of twist it. Does that make sense? That's what the world does. It kind of twists the truth a little bit, sweetens the deal, kind of makes it go down easier so that you'll accept it. And I think we've just made it clear that's not how Jesus operates that's not, if Simon understands that Jesus is the Christ, it's not because Jesus has sweetened the deal for him through his speaking, okay? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. This means anytime Jesus said something difficult to swallow, anything about marriage or divorce or Samaritans or about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, when everybody else would walk away, Peter is rooted to the spot. Why? Because God the Father through the Holy Spirit, roots Peter and says, he's right. Listen to him. He's right. This is right. Listen to what he is really trying to say. But he just said all these things about the Samaritan. Yes, but look at what the Samaritan did. Listen to what my son is saying. The Holy Spirit keeps Peter rooted to the spot. Now, what does this have to do with Psalm 13? Jesus is the word of God. John 1, the word became flesh Jesus is the word of God become flesh. The Bible is the word of God. They're both the word of God. Jesus says what he says. And we have to rely on the Holy Spirit to make that beautiful to us. The Bible is no different. The Bible says what it says. It doesn't try to sweeten the deal. And we have to rely on the Holy Spirit to make it beautiful to us. 1 Corinthians 1 says, The gospel is foolishness to people who are perishing. It's boring, or it's graphic, or it's gross. Only through the Holy Spirit can a Christian look at that and say, It's beautiful. That's what I want. That's what I want. No one can look at that and think that it's beautiful without the help of the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Bible does. The Bible puts the truth out there. And we now, with the Holy Spirit's help, have to see it as beautiful and think on it and dwell on it most people that you know don't read their bible this is one of the reasons why because all of the bible is like psalm 13 it doesn't really offer solutions to your problem it just talks about god all the time well maybe god is trying to tell us something maybe jesus is trying to tell us something maybe it is trying to tell us That God is the solution to the problem. That Jesus is the solution to the problem. He is literally the solution to the problem. Not that he'll make it go away. He is the solution. And we'll talk about that. We're going to dig into that in just a second. But that's one of the reasons pain is not always bad. Because pain shows that the Bible is real. I love that how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord. That's in the Bible over 60 times. Over... The first 72 psalms, over half of them are psalms of sadness. They're not psalms of like good things. They're psalms of heartbreak and sadness. And I love that that's in there because it shows that the Bible is real. And when Christians go through pain, it's how we show the world that our God is not our problems being solved. Our God is God in pain and in peace. So that's the first reason pain is bad. The second and final reason that pain is not always bad Second and final reason that pain is not always bad is because of this because the plow makes it beautiful. Okay? The plow makes it beautiful. God works on us in our pain. That's part of why pain is not always bad, because God works on us in our pain. Now, I have to say something here that's very important because you guys have heard this before. Pain means he's working on you. He's, he's doing all these great things in you in your pain. Don't, don't be sad. You need to rejoice. You need to rejoice because he's working on you in your pain. That's what you hear all the time. But I have to say something on the other side of that. God does not just work on you in pain, okay? Like you see people who go through all this terrible pain and someone says, God is doing a real work in his life to pain, And that's true. But now listen, because this is going to be a huge paradigm shift for a lot of you guys. God does just as much work on you. He works just as hard on you on your easy days and on your restful days as He does on your painful days. He works just as hard on you in your easy days and your restful days as He does in your painful days. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to Psalm 121.4. This is God speaking about Israel. Behold, He, that's God, He who keeps Israel, He who watches over Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. So when God watches over Israel, he will not sleep. He does not take off days. But you have really easy days. So does that mean that God's only working on you in the pain and on the easy days, he's kind of let his foot off the gas a little bit? According to the Bible, he never does that. He's working just as hard on you on those easy days where you're having so much fun as he is on these terrible days where you just lean in on him. In John five seventeen, Jesus says, when my, when my heavenly Father is working, I am working. Jesus is working just as often as God the Father. God the Father is working all the time. So Jesus is working all the time, forgiving us, picking us back up, washing us with his blood all the time. That's what Christ is doing. And so the question comes, if he works just as hard on us during times of joy as he does in times of pain, why does there have to be pain? Why can't he just work on us in the joy all the time and life's like this big birthday party and everything's cool? I mean, he works, you just said, he works just as hard. This is a good question. Why does there have to be pain? That's a really good question. And I I have what I think is an answer, okay? Okay. There's not going to be a quiz, so don't freak out. Uh, A guy named Sigmund Freud was the leading psychologist of his time, late 1800s, early 1900s, and he says this. Listen to this. And again, why is there pain? That's the question. Why does God work on us in our pain? He said, if you really want to understand something, look at it when it's broken. If you really want to understand something, look at it when it's broken. Guys, when we're broken, That's when our hearts are exposed, and that's when the the doctor can do surgery. When our hearts are exposed, that's when the doctor can do surgery. Picture a doctor. He can't do surgery. If there's nothing here, he can't just start cutting. He has to open. He has to expose the heart so that he can work on it. Pain does that for us. It exposes our heart so that God can begin to work on it. And, and through pain, that's when the soil in our lives is ripped up and the seeds can get planted. You can't just go outside and throw seed on the ground. The soil has to be pulled up and ripped up so that seeds can be planted and so that they can go deep. Do you guys remember this at all from beach camp when we talked about the plow? Some of this, some of you guys remember him? Let me just, and, and Bo and I got to talk about this just and kind of reminisce a little bit. I am so ready for beach camp, and it's just, it's going to be so great. Um, but we got to talk about a little bit of this a couple, a couple minutes ago. And just to rehash it for you guys, what is the plow? What is this talking about? Picture a field, okay? Picture a field, and it is barren, and it is dusty, and it is dead, right? And the farmer sees that. Now, now follow me with this. The farmer can either leave the field as it is, and leave it dead and no growth and it's, it, it's peaceful and that's good, sort of, because it's dead. Or he can take the plow and he can say, I'm going to make it beautiful. Now a plow is essentially just a blade that sticks into the ground and you pull it back and it rips up the soil. But through ripping up the soil, seeds can be planted and there can be growth and it can become beautiful. But in order to make it beautiful, he has to rip up the soil. He has to rip up the ground. And that hurts. And that takes time. And it's during that time, it's during that pain, that we say, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And I think that that's a prayer that God understands. But guys, look at me. When when he works on you through the plow that's the proof that you're His. I don't know if I'm saved. I want to know if I'm saved. I don't, I don't know if I'm if I, I a Christian. Am I doing this right? Is there work being done? Are you anxious for there to be work done against your sin and against the evil that's in you and around you? Are you anxious for that? Is He working on you? The plow is evidence that you're His. It's evidence that your field is not just sitting there barren and dead with nothing happening. The plow is how he proves that we are his. The, the working on you, changing your heart in the tough times, that's how he shows that we're his. Old Testament. Now, Israel was God's people in the Old Testament. Okay, Israel is God's people in the Old Testament. Israel, Israel is a Hebrew word. Do you know what Israel means? Okay, little, little lesson for you. Israel is a Hebrew word, Israel. El means God. Israel means To to struggle. The word of Israel means, the word Israel means to struggle. God's people are literally defined by struggle. They were then and they are now. They are defined by Him ripping up the soil, saying, I know, hang on, hang with me, hang in there, come on, I'm here, I'm not leaving. That's what defines God's people. The plow is what defines God's people. If you ever find yourself saying, how long, O Lord, rejoice. It's part of the proof that you're His. Now what is this plow? What does this mean? What is the plow? The plow is God Himself. And that's the second part of this. Jesus is the answer to our pain. The plow is God Himself. Look back at Psalm 13. Look at verses 1 through 4. And this is how we know that the answer to our pain is Jesus, because he sure isn't finding the answer anywhere else. Look at at verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. Go back to verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul? What does that mean? Take counsel in my soul. This is, this is what that is. When you're going through something, when you're going through problems, you immediately begin to think, how can I solve this? That's what you think. How can I solve this? What can I do? Counsel is like advice. You're seeking advice. You're looking. Where do you look for the answer? You look to yourself. This guy is convinced that the answer is in here. So he takes counsel in his own soul. This is what this looks like in your life. You go through a problem. you got a problem, right? you got a problem. You can't figure out how to fix it. So you begin to come up with all these different ideas. This is all you. You come up with all these different ideas on how you're going to fix it. I'm going to go for a run. So you go for a run, and you come back, and it's still there. And a lot of you hate running, so that just makes the problem worse, right? So you go, and it's even worse. So the problem is still there. Now, okay, so now instead you're going to go buy something. So you go to the mall and you try to buy something. Or you go shop online and you try to buy something. So now you're you're a person with problems and nothing. And now you're a person with problems and stuff. This has not fixed your problem in any way. So then you go and you talk to your friends. You go and talk to your boyfriend or girlfriend. You go and talk to your parents. And you come back and it still doesn't fix it. You still go home in your bed and you're miserable. Even though you had fun with your friends, it hasn't fixed it. You see how you continue to go to this To yourself, you take counsel in your own soul to fix it, and it doesn't get any better. And if a problem's not getting better, it's probably getting what? It's probably getting worse. And this is what happens. The problem continues to get worse and it begins to infect everything. You say, Ryan, this is way over my head. I don't understand. Yes, you do. This happens to you all the time because here's what happens. The problem continues to get worse and it begins to infect every part of you. Now, you don't like to go for runs anymore because it just makes you angry all the time. And you only work out and you only go for runs when you're angry. Instead of trying to talk, to your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your parents or your friends, you lash at them instead because your problem's not getting better and you keep going back to the same thing to try to fix it. And it's just making everything worse. It's like if your bathroom is flooding and all that you do, you're just trying to replace the tiles over and over and over again. And it's continuing. You're not fixing the problem. And you're continuing to look in here and the problem's getting worse and worse. And that's why he says... How long do you have to leave me to just look to myself for the answer? He's beginning to understand that the problem cannot be fixed by what's in here. He's beginning to understand that the answer is coming from God. Here's what's happening. Over time, he's beginning to understand that his answer cannot be found in here. His worry and his problem is pushing him towards God. His worry and his problem is pushing him towards God. Look at verse 3. Psalm 13, 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. He's done listening to music and trying to ignore it. He's done with confidence boosters. He's tried to ignore it. He's tried to forget it. It won't go away. So now, he's finally being pushed to God for the answer. This worry has pushed him towards God for the answer. When it says, enlighten my eyes, Anytime in the Old Testament, anytime in Hebrew, when something's going on with your face, it reflects your soul. Anything that happens on the outside reflects the inside. Enlighten my eyes. Will's verse said, "Give spark to my eyes." This this guy has finally realized the only thing that's going to light up my soul is going to come from you. I can't find it anywhere else. The only thing that's going to light up my soul will come from you. And here's what's happening. His focus is beginning over time. His focus is beginning to shift over to God. Look at verses 1 through through 2. And we're going to kind of skip a little bit. Verse 1. How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Verse 2. How long... Shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all day? That all day, it literally means all days, every day. This is over time. How long, how long, how long, how long? Four times. Over time, this, is happening. this isn't just a one prayer thing. Over time, he is praying this prayer. Day after day, he is praying this prayer. And day after day, his heart is beginning to shift from his misery to God. Look at the, look at the passage, and I'll show you. Verses 1 through 2. How long, how long, how long, how long? Look, that's four cries of anguish. Anguish means pain, four cries of pain. Look at verses 3 and 4. Consider, answer me, Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. All right, look. So we have four cries of pain, we have three cries for deliverance. Now look at verses 5 and 6. I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Verse 6. I will sing to the Lord. Look. Two cries of praise. Four cries of pain. Three cries for deliverance. Two cries of praise. What's happening? Look at me. He is calming down over time. Over time, how long, how long, all day, all day, through prayer, through his worry, pushing him over. Over time, he is calming down. If you notice, the cry of praise is just half what the cry of anguish was. So there's four cries of anguish. He's talking all this time. And by the end, so much less talking. Why? Because it's peace now. Over time, he is calming down. In in, and we're, we're just going to get deep, and, and you'll get over it, and it'll be awesome. In Hebrew narrative, when in the Old Testament, is written in Hebrew. There we go. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. A Hebrew author, this is one of the things that he would use. When there's a point to his story, when there's a point to his story, any part of the story that doesn't have to do with that point, he takes it out. He just takes it out because it has nothing to do with the point he's trying to make. That's why people all the time will be like, well, why isn't this part in the Bible? Well, Why doesn't God tell us this? Or is it seven literal days? Or is it seven 24-hour periods? Or is it, why is it this? Or why is it this? If you notice in here, we don't know why this guy is so miserable. We don't know. Some people think it's a disease. Some people think it's uh, a neighboring army. We don't know. And then at the end, he just talks about the Lord's kindness, his problem is not solved yet. And that's the writer's point. What, what happened to the problem? The point is not the problem. He's saying the point is the prayer. Look at the prayer. Look at what's happening to him. Over time, his problem is not solved and he does not care. He doesn't care that his problem is not solved and that's the point that the author is trying to make. He is looking to God and In that, in his focus being turned towards God, he's found the solution. His problem's not over, but he has found the solution because he's been pointed to God. I had a friend at our old church that we went to in Atlanta called Peachtree Corners. Um, It's where my brother leads worship now. And There was a guy there, his name was Dennis. And Dennis had cancer and he went through chemo and it was very bad. And he's he's long since survived and, and he's doing fine now. This was a long time ago. And he... He was talking to me about it one time, and he said, now, you're going to hear it, and you're not going to think about it, but it'll sink. He said, Ryan, I'm, I'm not saying that I want cancer again. I'm not saying that I want to go through chemo again, but I miss how close I was with Jesus in that time. You miss it? What in the world? You miss how close you were during chemo. What happened? Psalm 13, that's what happened. His focus shifted to God, and his problem was not over. His cancer was not cured, and yet he found peace. One more. There was a guy named John Patton who was a missionary in Africa in the 1800s. And in the 1800s, he becomes friends with this chief of this tribe, right? And he becomes friends with this chief. And the chief turns on him when he begins to share the gospel. And all the members of this tribe begin to try to kill him. And they chase him through the woods. And he's, and he's running so fast from these guys that he just slams into a tree. And so he just climbs the tree and he just waits up there. He just waits for these people to find him and kill him or whatever happens. And in his biography, he, he wrote this. Listen to this. "'Being entirely at the mercy of such terrible people, "'I climbed into a tree and was left there alone in the forest. "'The hours I spent there stay in my mind as if it were but yesterday.' I heard the frequent firing of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches, safe in the arms of Jesus. Listen to this. Never in all my sorrows did the Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among the leaves and the night air played on my heart. As I told all my heart to Jesus, alone yet not alone. So he's alone in this tree, but he's not alone. What's happening? What's happening? Here it is. Remember what Dennis said about chemo and Jesus. Listen to what John Patton says about the tree. I still wish to spend many nights alone in such a tree again. To feel again my Savior's spiritual presence. To enjoy His fellowship. He wants to go back. He wants to go back. What in the world... He found, through trusting in the promises of God, he found God's presence in the problem. And God's presence in the problem is even better than a solution to the problem. He found God's presence. Look at verses five and six, and then then we'll be done. So this guy is still miserable. He still has this problem. Verses five and six. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. We're gonna go back to that in just a second. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I will sing to the Lord. I will rejoice in his salvation. Okay, here we go. One more lesson and then we're out. The word for salvation in the Old Testament is the word Yeshua. That's the word for salvation. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the Y and the J are the same. So you would spell Yeshua, J E S you. In the New Testament, there is a word for Yeshua, but it's in Greek. The New Testament's in Greek. The Old Testament is in Hebrew. You guys are going to be so smart by the time we're out of here. The Old Testament is in Greek. The New Testament is in Hebrew. In the Old Testament, it is Yeshua. In the New Testament, in English, the word for salvation, the same exact word is spelled J-E-S-U-S. It's Jesus's name. So this man, so this guy, this psalmist. Now, you gotta, you got to understand, this is David talking. David doesn't know who Jesus is. He's not looking to Jesus the person, but a New Testament person would read that and say, he's trusting in Yeshua. I've seen Yeshua. I've seen him in the flesh. I know who this person is. I know who I'm supposed to trust in. It's the same thing. The presence of Yeshua. The presence of Jesus. That's what's better than the solution to our problem. That's what this man found. And that's what we find now. I started with a book. I'm going to end with a book. Uh, This book has one page on Psalm 13. And listen to what it says in the prayer. Lord, this reminds me that believing the promise of your presence in my suffering takes time, grows slowly through stages in prayer. So I will pray until my heart rejoices in you. Now listen to the lesson. As long as we cry toward God and remember his salvation by grace in verse 5, we will end at a place of peace. If Christians do that by hearing Jesus pray verses 1 through 4 on the cross, losing the Father's face as he paid for our sins, we will be able to pray verses 5 and 6. So we're going to read it one more time, and then Ben and the band are going to come up and play, and we'll be out of here. But when you read verses 1 through 4, picture Jesus saying that on the cross in your place, And then you say verses 5-6. through How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? How long? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? Having sorrow in my heart all day, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death and my enemy will say I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. And then now we can say, verses 5 and 6, But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in Yeshua. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray.